0: Good morning. Well, we had a great weekend this weekend with the deacons and elders. We had our uh, annual leadership retreat on Friday. We enjoyed some wonderful, delicious food with the uh, wives invited. And then yesterday we looked at setting goals for 2023. That's the year we're in right now, right? And uh, so we are excited what God is doing. Um, I've also been excited as we've heard these uh, different pro-life ministries this month. Baptist Children Home talking about how they have orphanages all throughout the world. And last week, Alpha sharing about their holistic care that they provide to fathers and mothers. And uh, Life Matters talking about this wonderful ministry they have to post-abortive moms. I just want to share before we dive into the message that, that God loves you. And that when we think about being pro-life, that means God loves the people that are at a pregnancy resource center picketing what they're doing. It means God loves the people that, are, that might be spewing hate on us as Christians. It means that we need to care for those that experience unwanted pregnancies and come alongside them and be the hands and feet of Jesus to care for them. Because God cares not only for each of those babies, He cares for those moms and dads. And He cares for those who have made the, made the decision to have abortion. He cares for them. And so how can we be the hands and feet in all these different circumstances? Let's pray and then we'll begin. God, You're so good and gracious. And what a good reminder, Lord, that there is hope and healing and forgiveness found in You. No matter what mistakes we've made in the past, no matter what we've done, that you offer forgiveness, healing, and hope. And Lord, we just thank you for that truth. And as we transition now into the sermon, we recognize that your faithfulness is great. Morning after morning after morning, new mercies I see. I'm so thankful for that. But in the midst of those mercies, there's also hardships. So as we open your word today, I just pray that you'd use it to transform us to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Are you rejoicing today? For some of you, that came easy. But maybe right now you're going through the thick of it. Maybe this morning you woke up and it was anything but rejoicing. Maybe the last day, the last two days, the last week, the last month, or maybe even the last couple of years have been filled with hardship and difficulty. So, how can we say, rejoice in the Lord always? How can Paul write, rejoice in the Lord always, while he was in prison, shackled? Last week we asked the question, why, God? Why do we experience this suffering? If if you are truly sovereign, if you are truly over all things, why is there suffering in this world? Why is the world broken? We talked about how living in a world of brokenness, we experience broken relationships, death, sickness, cancer, financial struggles. At the end of the day, we asking this question why, we walked away with three takeaways. That first, God's eternal plan offers hope in the midst of hardship. God doesn't promise that life will be easy, but he does promise a future. And so in the midst of our hardship, we can have hope because of God's eternal plan. Secondly, we looked at how God's forgiveness provides motivation Because God offers forgiveness no matter what we've done and has forgiven us for way more than we can ever amend for, God offers forgiveness and that should motivate us to live for him. And lastly, we get to participate in God's eternal plan. God has called us to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. God has a plan and purpose for us and we get to participate in his eternal plan. But what if that eternal plan involves our suffering? What if it involves hardship? I looked up Webster's Dictionary for Suffering and it said the state or experience of one that suffers. And I said, I wouldn't get by with that in English class. I don't understand how Webster can get away with that, but that's what they said. So then I had to look up the word suffers because it's the state of someone who suffers. And it said to endure death pain or hardship, to sustain loss or damage, or to be subject to disability or handicap. There are all different types of suffering. We've all experienced suffering in our lives in one way, shape, or form. And, And sometimes that suffering may be because of our own sin, our own mistakes. If someone gets drunk and gets behind the wheel of a car and goes and drives and hits something they will experience the consequences of their sin. They may lose their license. They may have to pay a heavy fine. They may have insurance issues. Because of their sin, they're experiencing consequences. And sometimes when we sin, we experience the consequences from our sin. Sometimes we experience the consequences of other people's sin. One day I was sitting at a red light, minding my own business, stopped, and a drunk driver ran into the back of my car. I didn't do anything wrong. The light was red. But because of his decision, because of his sin and mistakes, I had whiplash, I had to get my car fixed, uh, insurance went up, all these different things because of something somebody else did. And so sometimes we experience suffering because of other people's sin. Sometimes we just experience suffering because of the brokenness of the world. When Jesus was asked about a paralytic and they said, Who sinned? His, did he sin or was it his parents? That wasn't the case. He wasn't crippled because of any sin by him or his parents. He was experiencing the brokenness of this world, which we talked about last week, that the original sin in Genesis 3 has marred all of creation. So creation is groaning, longing for a time where Christ will restore all things. And so we all experience this suffering because of the brokenness of this world. Cancer, health problems, death, natural disasters. Those are all part of the brokenness of the world that we all have to suffer through. But most Christians in America don't experience one kind of suffering that the Bible talks about quite a lot. And that is suffering because of Jesus. We, we live in a culture where, you know, I mean, yes, people may say mean words to us. But really, we don't experience persecution the way the rest of the Christian world experiences it. In Colossians 1, Paul writes this. We just said it aloud. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, which is the church. Now this can be a pretty conv- confusing verse. And one of the parts in there is uh, there's all different opinions about what it means. And there's been book- whole books written on it. But John and I were looking at this section in Colossians uh, 1, 24 to 2, 5. And it's a chiastic structure, so, you know, A and then B and then C and then CBA. And we were trying to figure out how do we break this up, because it's kind of like one thought. Because if I do ABC this week, he's just going to have to preach my sermon backwards next week and go CBA. And that'd be kind of confusing. And so I decided, well, we don't talk about suffering very much in church, so I'm just going to stick on one verse. So you got extra verses next week. So good luck. But this is written, by a guy who suffered a lot. And he says, I rejoice in my suffering. In fact, in one place, Paul actually describes all the suffering he went to. In 2 Corinthians 11, there were people in Corinth that were saying, Paul, Paul shouldn't be followed because if you truly follow Christ, you won't experience any hardship. And Paul had to kind of give his, you know, resume, so to speak. And he writes that are they servants of Christ? He's he's talking about these people, and he said, "I am out of my mind to talk like this." What what is he? Why is he saying I'm out of my mind? Well, have you ever had someone that you're talking to, and you're like, "I know I don't need to respond to this. It's not worth responding to." But you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. I need to do it. Paul's kind of saying that I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Now, he's going to brag, but he's he's going to say in other places why he's bragging. He's trying to present a case. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Sounds like he had fun, right? Well, hey, it gets more. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pelted with stones. Three times, I was shipwrecked. One of those times, I spent a night and a day out on open sea. That's like one of my biggest fears, man. Like, I mean, I go to the ocean, and I go like as far as I can where I think a shark can't get me. I just can't imagine like just floating for like 24 hours. Like that that would terrify me. Like I'll, I'll take the whips instead. But... I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Basically, anywhere I went, I was in danger, and in danger of false believers. Everywhere I went, I experienced suffering. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. Parents of newborns can at least relate to that one. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I think maybe we should tab this place in our Bible when we have a hard day, just flip up to this chapter. But what did that accomplish? Why did he go through? Why would someone willingly choose to go through all of that? Paul chose to do that. He could have sat at home and done nothing. He chose to willingly go through all that. Well, through that, God used him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. God brought Christianity to Asia Minor. God moved in miraculous ways through Paul's suffering. And when you look at the, all the movements of Christianity, we consistently see the gospel spreading through missionary hardship. So as we get worried that, well, it seems like our culture is getting more hostile to Christ, that actually might be a good thing for us as Christians, because often apathy sets in when we have it easy. I took some data from a few recent magazines, so this doesn't originate in me, but the Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime in Iran. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. And Open Doors ranks Iran as the eighth worst place in the world to be a Christian with extreme level of persecution. The government bans conversion from Islam. So in other words, it's illegal to become a Christian. The government imprisons those who proselytize, so it's illegal to tell somebody about Jesus, and arrests those who attend underground house churches, so it's illegal to attend church, and illegal to distribute Christian literature. So if you think about all that, you go, there's probably not very many Christians in Iran then. Despite all of this, the church in Iran has become one of the fastest growing in the world in terms of conversion. While it's difficult to determine exactly how many Christians live in Iran, given that they keep their faith in secret for fear of persecution, it's been estimated that there could be as many as a million Iranian believers. Now you rewind back to 1979, there were 500. See, these types of movements are happening throughout the world when when Christ is suppressed, when Christians are persecuted... God can move. Outside the Muslim world, the experience of the world's largest persecuted church, the Chinese church, mirrors that of the early church. During the first three decades of communist rule in China, the church was subjected to severe persecution, especially during the era known as the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76, launched by Mao Zedong. The campaign sought to preserve communism in China by waging war against its perceived enemies, including religion. Hundreds of thousands of Christians died during this time. Hundreds of thousands. Remarkably, Christianity went underground, and Pro- Protestants even witnessed sizable growth by the end of this revolution. As hundreds of thousands died, they were growing. Since 1950, the Protestant Christianity has grown by a factor of 23. At least 5% of China's population of 1.5 billion people are now Christians, and some predict that that percentage will grow exponentially over the next several years, so that by 2030, China will have more Christians than any other country in the world. And that's not even to talk about all the church's growth in Muslim countries in Africa and other places throughout the world. So why does the gospel spread in areas with the most persecution? Why, when you look at the, the countries where, where the, the most rapid growth through conversion is, tends to mirror places that there's persecution, not places where there's religious freedom? Well, one, we can just say it's a work of God. I mean, last night as we gathered as elders and deacons, we we started by prayer. And we said, like, nothing's going to happen. We could have the best plans in the world. We could lay out the best strategy. We could have the best programs. Unless God moves, you know, nothing's going to happen. This is God's church. It's not our church. So we need a work of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, prayer. When you look at all those movements, you see a tremendous movement of prayer, especially among those underground churches and people that are going, a reliance on God. In America, it's easy to become complacent in our faith, but in countries like Iran and China, you can't become complacent. You're either a Christian willing to lay your life on the line for Jesus, or you just said that's not worth it. We talk often about counting the cost. Well, in countries like that, They literally have to count the cost. If I choose to follow Jesus, I may be rejected by my family. I may lose my job. I may be imprisoned. I may lose my life. Is Jesus worth that? Yes. He is. And that is why the church is growing so rapidly in countries like that, because he is worth it. And as people in these places witness the joy of believers in the midst of their suffering, they say, that person has something different, and I want to know what it is. And it's the joy and suffering of Christians, our our brothers and sisters in places like this, that causes people to want to know who Jesus is, because suffering can actually be good. What does Paul do when he suffers? Now I rejoice in what I am Suffering. writing from prison, he says, I rejoice. How can he have that perspective? What causes him to think that way? Well, in James 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trial of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Struggles, trials, hardships produce something Romans 5 says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope suffering produces something in us. In James 3, 4, after that verse, it says that we need to let perseverance finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's sometimes we go through suffering in our life, and we see, and sometimes we don't see it in the moment. Sometimes we see it later. What it's producing in us. So back back in 2015, we uh, we just felt like God was was leading us to to adopt somewhere down the road, and uh, and so we just started praying about that. And uh, in 2016, God God moved. Uh, kai into our house and and we we're so blessed uh you know kai accepted christ went went to cedarville and now is working at a church in chicago it was a tremendous tremendous blessing to see god work in his life but there were normal suffering challenges that we experienced as parents of teenagers trying to get up up, up in the morning trying to get them out the door any other time of the day coming from a culture that time is not important we would tell them we're, we're going to leave at one o'clock when our plan was to leave at like two and we'd still be late uh but a lot of blessings. And then, uh, and then in 2020, we felt like we were ready to adopt. Now is the time. So we went through all the certifications, all that kind of stuff. And, and we got certified, I think, in January 2021. And, and we got paired with uh, two boys and, and then just gearing up for it, praying about it. And it fell through. And then uh, we got paired with one boy, and uh, we had been praying for him for over a year. We didn't think that would happen. And we got paired with them. And there was a sense of joy and rejoicing. But they paired them with another family, too. And they went through the whole evaluation process and they chose the other family. At the time, because of how I framed it, I was like, God knows what he's doing and I know he closes the door. But it was hard. It's hard when you're thinking one way and you go through suffering. You're like, what are you doing? And God was doing something in me in the midst of that. And I can look back and I can see it. And then while I was watching all the people fleeing the Taliban in Afghanistan, I said, God, God, open our home. And we created a plan and God said, nope. (laughs) And then we created a secondary plan and God said, nope. And then they asked us for a different plan and we said, Uh, God? And, uh, and God led us to, to have two Afghan refugees move in with us. And it's been a, many blessings, but many hardships. Having two teenagers from a different culture, a different religion, different language, all those things. But God has sustained us. And it's been good because in the midst of all that, God has been working and producing something in my life that would not exist If I just sat back and watched the Tigers play baseball, which I love doing, except for last year, they were horrible. (laughs) But when we choose to obey God, sometimes God calls us to do hard things. And sometimes we are in the midst of it and we go, why? Why, God, would this be hard? But we know that in the midst of the suffering, God is producing something in us. And that perseverance leads to character, and that character leads to hope, and God does something in us and through us. And so often we're conditioned as Americans to pursue comfort. We gotta make more money so we can get a bigger house so we have more space. We gotta make more money so we can have a nicer car so it's more comfortable. And, and there's this pursuit of comfort, and there's nothing wrong with comfort. God has, has designed this world for us to enjoy, and there, there's goodness that exists, and there's, there's a beauty in coming home on a Sunday afternoon after a meal with my family and sitting down and watching football and just basking in enjoyment. God is good, and the lions are bad, but God is still giving me enjoyment in the moment. God provides joy in the midst of all these different things. But, but often if our only pursuit is comfort, then we find that we may lack perseverance. We may miss out on God developing our character and giving us hope in the midst of of difficulties. So how can we rejoice when we suffer? Well, listen to this passage from Acts 5. This might be the most convicting passage in the Bible for me. I, I've gone back to it a lot recently, and and listen to this. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. That's not a, that's not a fun process, by the way. Um, you wouldn't want to do it, okay? Uh, you, some people died during flogging. That's how severe it was. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of the suffering, uh, worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus. I can't imagine just looking at my own life. I pray that this would be me, but I just imagine if I was being beaten, that I wouldn't be going, Thank you, Jesus. I would hope I would. But because they were suffering, they rejoiced, because they were counted worthy to be able to do this. It says later, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Right after they got beaten, they went back to work and started doing the same thing they were doing that caused them to be thrown into the prison and get flogged in the first place. We're not going to stop. We're going to rejoice in the midst of this. Because suffering can produce joy. And how could suffering produce joy? This doesn't make sense. Well, if if you frame it in light of eternity. 1 Peter 1 puts it this way. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now you may say, for a little while, Phil... (laughs) I've been suffering for a lot of while. You don't know what I've gone through. It hasn't been a day. It hasn't been a week. It hasn't been a month. This has been years of suffering. And you're saying it's a little while? Well, compared to eternity, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, we can rejoice because we know the end of the book. We can rejoice because we know what God has for us. We we can rejoice because we know what eternity holds. Paul continues, not only do I rejoice, I rejoice in why I'm suffering for You. In Philippians 1, he said, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not I to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you have gone through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying, by me going through these sufferings, I am suffering for you. Because you are going to go through the same stuff, and I already have. And we're in this together to suffer for Jesus, to proclaim this name. So, Paul's suffering was for the benefit of the church in Colossae, but it was also for our benefit. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way believers grow through their personal suffering, and the good they receive flows to others, thus edifying the church. Or to put it in the Phil Severn translation God doesn't waste our pain. Those moments, those mistakes, those failures, those hurts, the sufferings, God doesn't waste them. God has used my pain and my suffering and my mistakes more than any victories or successes that I've had in my life. My deepest, darkest depression moments back from when we lived in Philly, I would never want to go through that again, but God has used that in mighty ways. God doesn't waste our pain. Continuing in verse twenty-four, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in the flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now here we have one of the most debated uh, verses in Scripture. There have been lots of books uh, written on it. A lot of my commentaries are written by people that are similarly theologically minded, and they all disagreed with each other. Uh, usually they're like you know pretty pretty together. And I do read broadly, so I, I have some that usually disagree with each other, but. Um, the ones that usually agree, were like, I think it's this. And the other one's like, I think it's this. And the other one's like, I think it's this. I'm like, I actually, I like you two guys. I think you got it right. So I'm going to tell you what the two guys I think got it right, but I could be wrong. So uh, we're going to do that. One thing that's consistent is all of them agree, all of them agree that this doesn't mean that somehow Christ's atonement was lacking something. That the atoning sacrifice of Christ was somehow insufficient. That what Jesus did on the cross did not fully pay for what we did. That it did not accomplish what he set out to accomplish. That when he said, it is finished, that it wasn't actually finished, that we have to do something to add to that. Everybody says, that's not true. That's not what Paul's saying. That goes against everything else Paul wrote. Because when Christ said, it is finished, it was finished. We don't need to add anything to it. We come by grace through faith, not by anything we have done. So it doesn't mean that. But... I think Philippians 2 holds the key. So I think sometimes last week we looked at the the circles of context. So you look at a context, you say, okay, it's saying something here. This doesn't seem to make sense. So now we go out to the rest of the book, okay, and here it doesn't really provide the answer. So now we go out to the rest of Paul's writings. And I think we have the answer in Philippians 2. In verse 25, he says, But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also a messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. So the church in Philippi wanted to send a gift to Paul while he was in prison, and they sent this guy Epaphroditus, and he brought the gift to provide for the needs of Paul. Verse 26, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him also, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus risked his life to go bring this gift to Paul and almost died, but God saved him. Verse 28, therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Now, in the midst of all Paul's rejoicing, we can have comfort that even Paul experienced anxiety. So once he gets there, okay, I'm good. Verse 29, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give, or in the Greek, it's the same exact from Colossians, to fill up what is lacking. How, in what way did Epaphroditus fill up what was lacking? What was lacking in Rome was the Philippian church wasn't there. And he, Paul missed them. Paul wanted to be with them, and they couldn't be with Paul, so they sent Epaphroditus as their messenger to go be our emissary, go represent our church. And so Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking because Paul was missing the church in Philippi, and by Epaphroditus being there, it was like the whole church was there with him. He, they, he filled up what was lacking by them not being able to come. And he he says the same thing about Fortunatus and Achaeus at the end of his letter to Corinthians, the same Greek. They supplied what was lacking from you because they were there and the church wasn't there and so they went as emissaries of the church. So we are called to fill... Other believers up, just like Epaphroditus. Now, it could have been, uh, God could have appointed angels to do this thing, but instead he appointed Paul to go and suffer and to be a demonstration of who God is. And he appoints us to go up and be an example in our suffering. When we go through things, to fill this up, to, to, to point people, to demonstrate to others who Christ is. Because others we don't, we don't have the, the crucifixion of Jesus on YouTube. I mean, we have reenactments, but like we don't have a way to see Jesus do what he did. And so when people see us doing what he did, suffering on his behalf, it points them to who Jesus is. In the words of John Piper, we are a visible reenactment of the suffering of Christ for others so that when they see me suffering to love them they will have a visual enactment of Christ's love for them. So when they see me loving them and suffering to love them, they'll have this visual enactment. I think it's best expressed in Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? They need someone to go and fill this up, to to be the visual reenactment. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's a missionary uh, in India. I have his picture up there. And uh, he was known as the apostle with bleeding feet. And uh, he was he accepted Christ when he was in India. And uh, most of the missionaries there were from the West. And so a lot of those missionaries not only brought Christ to this area, but they brought Western culture. And he was kind of concerned that... Uh, you know, they weren't only just preaching Christ, but they wanted Indians to kind of be kind of more like Western civilization. So he said, "I'm going to embrace uh, who I am as an Indian, but also embrace Christ." And uh, he so he dressed as an Indian holy man, and he didn't wear. He, and, and they had these Indian holy men that would travel from town to town, and they wouldn't have any possessions, and they would just live off the generosity of others. And so instead of traveling town to town preaching what those People preached. He's traveled town to town preaching Jesus with no possessions. And he was beaten and persecuted and thrown out and stoned and all these different things. He experienced all sorts of things. But one of the things that was characteristic of him, because he didn't wear shoes, is he'd go town to town barefoot. And so his feet would get lots of blisters and even bleed. Uh, and one story was he went to a village and he started telling about Jesus and they kicked him out. And he had traveled a long way to get to that village, so he went and lied down on a tree. And when he woke up, the whole town was around him. He was freaking out because he thought, you know, I've been, I've been, I've seen this this story before. I've been beaten before. But they weren't there to threaten him. And they said, while you're sleeping, someone came out and they saw your blistered and bloody feet. And they go, if you suffered that much just to come tell us about this thing, you must truly be a holy man, so we want to hear what you have to say. Amen. How beautiful are the feet of those. Who bring good news. Because of his suffering, he was able to fill up what was lacking. He was able to show them who Jesus is. Paul continues, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in the flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul says he's suffering for the church. Now, why does he say that? Well, in Acts 9, well, when Paul was Saul and he was going around killing and persecuting Christians, the Lord Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who was Paul persecuting? The church, Christians. But God said, when you're persecuting Christians, you're persecuting Christians. Me later in Acts nine, the Lord says to Ananias, Go this man, me, is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so in the same way that the church suffered at the hand of Paul and it was Christ who was being persecuted, Paul suffered for the sake of christ's body, the church, so with every whip, every beating from the rod that Paul experienced, Christ was being persecuted in those moments. One commentator put it this way, in the same way that there was a fourth person in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord was with Paul as he suffered. So anytime we, we study a passage like this, I think it's often good just to ask a couple questions. So I just want to end with three questions, three simple questions. One, how do you frame your suffering? I think a lot of life is about how we frame circumstances. In marriage, one of the things Sandy and I learned uh, a few, I don't know how long ago, but it's coming really handy, is uh, we used to see the other person as the problem in our conflicts. I'd be mad at her, she'd be mad at me, and now we're the enemies. And that leads to a hard time to solve conflicts. But we learned a skill, and the skill was this. Sandy's not the problem. I'm not the problem. So let's work together to identify what the problem is and now we're a team working together to solve the problem. And then that actually causes conflict to build intimacy in marriage. Because you're a team working together to solve a problem. The other person's not the problem. You're a team working together. And teammates, that, that builds intimacy. It's all about how you frame it. Well, suffering is the same way. It's about how we frame it. So we can come every Sunday and say, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, And we can mean it. It's all about how we frame suffering. Paul writes that verse, Rejoice, Lord, always from prison. Paul rejoiced when he was beaten five times with whips. He rejoiced when he was beaten three times with rods. He rejoiced when he was shipwrecked three times and the one time where he was just doing this out in the open ocean. He rejoiced each of those times. He rejoiced when he was pelted with stones and almost killed. He rejoiced when he experienced lack of sleep and starvation and many other hardships. And he still says, now I rejoice for what I am suffering for you. How can he do that? That's when we frame our sufferings in an eternal perspective. Another book in Romans 8, Paul writes it this way. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing. When I was 16, I I had a first girlfriend. We dated for one week. Went on one date. She went home with one case of food poisoning. And we never went on a date again. When we broke up, I was devastated. That moment felt huge. Huge. We broke up. I had liked this girl for a long time. That was a huge moment. Now that I'm 41 years old, I look back and i was like, that was stupid. That was not a big moment in my life that had no influence on the rest of my life. Compared to these 41 years, that was just but a momentary speck. You may look at your life and go, yes, but Phil, that's, that's a minor thing. Do you know what I experienced? And you may have experienced something that was monumental, life-changing, horrific, very difficult. But now picture 2,375,075 years down the road. And all but 75 of that, let's say you die when you're 75, was spent in eternity with God. Do you think 2,375,075 years down the road... You'll go back and be like, man, that moment really was really hard. It was hard, but in comparison to eternity, it's momentary. And these moments are so difficult. I mean, Jesus wept. He understands our weakness. He came to this earth. He suffered. He was betrayed by one of his best friends, and he was brutally murdered. So that we can have eternal life. So that when we look at the grand scheme of eternity, this moment although it's significant and difficult, when compared with eternity, is but a speck. And then Paul also believed that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And sometimes it's easy to believe that, and other times, frankly, it's just really hard. How could God bring any good out of this? But Paul had faith that God would. Whatever the circumstance was, he believed God was sovereign. So how would you look at your suffering differently if it was in the light of eternity? If you were look forward to the millions and millions and millions and millions and billions and trillions and whatever years in eternity, how would that help you frame this moment? This difficult, hard moment. It's hard to frame our lives like that. But thankfully, as we try to do that, we have a servant to look to. As we suffer, we don't have a God who is distant. We have a God who walked through suffering himself, who left heaven's throne to come to earth to experience pain and sorrow and hardship. And so we don't have to go, well, you know, this might not be a big deal because of eternity. But it is a big deal. But it's such a big deal that Christ died for it. That Christ chose to suffer for it. That Christ chose to suffer for you so that you can spend eternity with him. That's the kind of God we serve, not one who is distant, who says do all this stuff, but the one who came down and did it himself and paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have life. So one, how do you frame suffering? Two, are you willing to choose suffering? Are you willing to go to wherever God calls you to go and do whatever he calls you to do? In the second century, Tertullian, an early church father, reached the astounding conclusion that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because the place where the church is growing fastest are the places where it's often illegal and dangerous to be a Christian. Romans 10, we read it earlier. How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right now when I talk to mission agencies, um, they are not getting nearly enough applications like they did years ago. There are not enough people going. When you talk to churches, looking for staff, looking for pastors, there's slim pickings out there. We have an opportunity to say yes to God. And saying yes to God may mean choosing to enter suffering Willingly. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this vision of God and he's so humbled and he says, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the angel comes and touches his lips with coal, cleansing of his sin. And then God says this, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. That's a dangerous prayer. Here am I, send me. Are you willing today to say that? If God is who He is, if He truly is sovereign over all things, if He truly sent His Son to come and die on your behalf, if He truly provided eternal life, are you willing to say, God, here am I, send me? And God may send you anywhere. He may send you to help out with Life Matters. He may send you to go to Alpha and work with a, a young pregnant teenage mom. Just to walk alongside her. He may send you all the way across the world to Iran where you may die. But are you willing? Are you willing to say, here am I, send me. He might just send you to the desk right next to you at work. And say, hey, tell that person about me because I changed your life. It's not always this extravagant stuff. God wants our daily obedience. Sometimes the sending of us involves just apologizing to our wife because we're an idiot. You have to ask the Lord, what, what do you want from me every day? God, would you use me? Would you send me? Would you do your work in me? Third, how will the church benefit from your suffering? Paul said he was suffering on behalf of the church, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Why does he comfort us in our troubles? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So as you're going through the sufferings, you get the comfort from Jesus. Next r- verse. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. God doesn't waste our pain. And in this room, there are probably people that currently struggle with infertility. And I know there are people in here that have struggled with infertility in the past. And some, God has opened the door through adoption. other, God has opened the womb again. But when you've gone through something like that, you can come alongside someone who's going through it and and give them comfort in the struggles and, and the trouble and the distress that you experience to comfort them. There may be multiple people in here that have had an abortion in the past. And there may be one of you that has had tremendous healing through the grace of God. And another one of you that is still struggling. And that one who's experienced that grace can come alongside the one that's struggling and show them how Christ provides freedom from guilt and shame and how Christ can provide new life. Maybe someone here has lost a spouse or a family member or a friend or lost a job or had relational strain or struggling with depression. Any of these things, God, as we go through these sufferings, God uses them for the benefit of our church. Because as we suffer, he produces in us perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And when we find that hope in the midst of our suffering, we can pass along that hope. Because there is someone else that's suffering. And it may be a co-worker. It may be someone in your life group. It may be someone in your D group. It may be someone in the congregation. But God doesn't waste our pain. And His call to you may be to come alongside someone that's experiencing what you experienced in the past and to be their friend and to love them. So how do you frame suffering? See, as momentary in light of eternity. Are you willing to choose suffering? Are you willing to go? Will you pray, here I am, send me? And how will the... Church, benefit from your suffering. Can your story be used by God? The answer is yes. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for all you've done for us. And Lord, help us as we face suffering. And Lord, there may be some people in here where it does feel like a momentary thing. It's I just got to get through today or it's been a bad week. But there are others that may, this may be something that's been months or years of suffering and they need your hope. So Lord, we pray that you'll surround them with others that have that hope, that can provide that hope, that can offer that hope because they've experienced it through you, but ultimately that they turn to you. Maybe today they need to give up. They've been trying to do it on their own. They've been trying to put their head down and work harder. But we know you're the giver of all good gifts, and maybe today they just need your grace to say, Lord, I can't do anymore. I need you. If that's the case, help them to do that. And